population study, we are currently in a long parenthetical break. Do you remember that? And this break is found between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments. Actually, back in chapter 11, verse 16, we heard the 7th trumpet sound. We heard the noise of the trumpet. But we won't read about the bowl judgments which issue from that 7th trumpet until we get to chapter 16. During this longest parenthetical break in the book of Revelation, which goes from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 14, and some people even include chapter 15, which you can also do, because chapter 15 talks about the angels preparing to pour out the bold judgments. Well, during this break, we have already learned of some of the details about the tribulation period, which had not been previously given to us. For example, back in chapter 10, which was the first chapter of this break. We read about the mighty angel with the little scroll in his hand. Then in chapter 11, we learned about two mighty witnesses. And these witnesses will proclaim the truth of the gospel to Israel, to the nation of Israel. And then in chapters 12 and 13, we were introduced to the seven main characters of the book of Revelation. And now as we continue in this long break between the 6th and the 7th trumpet judgments, we come to chapter 14 where we are going to find a preview of the end of the tribulation. After having just told us about the fearsome and the awesome power and character of the beasts, the two beasts who will serve as Satan's agents, as he establishes his mini-millennium on earth, and before telling us about the final and the most horrible of God's judgments, which are those vile judgments, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, interjects chapter 14 in order to serve as comfort to the saints of God. Particularly will this chapter be a comfort to the saints who will be living during the time of the tribulation itself. Now, why will this chapter serve as a comfort to those saints? Well, because it deals with the ultimate triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ by presenting a series of seven pronouncements or seven visions which are intended to assure the reader of the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus and of the ultimate defeat and judgment of those who will follow Satan's beasts, those who will follow the unholy trinity. Now this chapter, chapter 14, discusses prophetic events which will occur in the latter half of the tribulation, which is known as what? The Great Tribulation. Remember, the first half of the tribulation is commonly referred to as the beginning of sorrows. The last three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation. And so this is what we will be looking at primarily in this chapter is events which are yet future from even where John is writing, events which will occur at the end of the Great Tribulation period. So actually what we see in chapter 14 is an overview of what we will be reading about and studying in more detail in chapters 15 through 19. So this is just kind of like a little preview chapter here. So even though in our previous lesson on the Satanic Trinity, we learned about the mighty power and the deceptive abilities of the two beasts, and we learned about Satan's evil purposes for the world, 
this next chapter, chapter 14, assures us, and it assures those who will be living in this awful time, that there is a power greater than Satan. There is a power greater than the unholy trinity. And that is the power of the Lamb, the power of the true trinity, the holy trinity. And his, their, I should say their, the holy trinity's purposes for the world will ultimately triumph. So chapter 14 stands in stark contrast to chapter 13. In chapter 13, the subject was, at least in the first part of the chapter, the Antichrist. He was the subject of the first half of chapter 13. Now in chapter 14, the subject is the true Christ. In chapter 13, we viewed in the last half a false lamb. Remember? He came appearing like a lamb. He had he looked like a lamb. He had two little horns. And he, it says he looked like a lamb, but who was he really? He was the false prophet, and he was speaking for the dragon. He was speaking for Satan. So in chapter 14, in chapter 13, we saw a false lamb. In chapter 14, we will see the true lamb. In chapter 13, we read about men who were branded with the mark of the beast. In chapter 14, we're going to read about those who are sealed with the mark of God. Then in place of the multitudes that we saw in chapter 13 worshiping the Antichrist and bowing to his image and blaspheming God and anything that had to do with God, in chapter 14 we are going to hear the hosts of heaven praising God and giving him glory. Instead of the saints of God being martyred for not having taken the beast's mark on their foreheads, in chapter 14 we're going to see those who do wear, who will wear the mark of the beast being cast into eternal torment. And then instead of seeing beasts emerging from the sea and from the land below, As we did in chapter 13, in chapter 14, we're going to see the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, emerging from the clouds above. So there are a lot of comparisons and contrasts between the two chapters. Last week, uh, we looked at visions of viciousness, didn't we? Visions of viciousness as satanically empowered beasts ruled over the world. This lesson this morning is on a much happier note. I'm sure you're glad about that. Because this morning we're going to be looking at visions of victory. As the Lord Jesus Christ returns in John's prophetic preview here to take back the earth which rightfully belongs to him and then to judge the wicked before he sets up his millennial kingdom. Actually, there are seven, wouldn't you know, seven victorious visions found in this chapter. But this morning, I only have time to look at five of them. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the last two, and then we'll also cover chapter 15. The title for our study is Victory Visions, and we'll be looking at chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. And in that, we'll study the first vision, which I've entitled Faithful Virgins, the second vision, the Forever Gospel, the third vision will be the Fall of Babylon, the fourth vision is all about future wrath, and the fifth vision, future rest. So let's look, first of all, at Faithful Virgins in verses 1 to 5. This is the first vision out of seven that John has in this chapter. Verses 1 to 5. John says... And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, 
and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. As John received this first vision in this series of seven prophetic visions, which push us ahead here actually in time, they push us ahead to the end of the tribulation, the end of the great tribulation, the first thing John noticed is a lamb standing on Mount Zion or Zion. And this gives us, again, a striking comparison to the previous chapter where we found all the world focused on a false lamb, the false prophet, who, like his father, the dragon, spoke lies. Now, the lamb which John sees in chapter 14 is not the false lamb any longer. John is seeing the true lamb of God. He saw the lamb who came at his first coming to take away the sin of the world. He saw the standing slain lamb, remember, that we saw back in chapter 5, I believe it was, who had taken that title deed scroll from the right hand of God the Father. And he saw the lamb who at his second coming, of which this is a a prophetic preview. It's like John just skips ahead in time and sees the end of the tribulation. And he saw the Lamb who at his second coming is going to come where? Just as it says here, to Mount Zion. Exactly. That's another name for Jerusalem. He will return to Mount Zion to judge the unbelieving world and then to establish his 1,000-year kingdom right here on earth. Zechariah 14.4 foretold of the fact that the Lord's second coming... Now, this is not... You know, the first part of the second coming, which is the rapture when he comes for his saints in the air. This is the second part of the second coming when he comes down to earth and uh, actually, you know, comes to reign for those thousand years. Zechariah 14.4 tells us that he would come, in fact, to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. And Jerusalem is also called Zion. And then the psalmist, God himself spoke through the psalmist in Psalm 2, 6, when he said, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It's God the Father's full intention, which he will complete, to put his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the throne of David, just as he had promised he would do. And he will do it. Well, with the Lamb, John also saw 144,000 people, obviously people, standing there with him on Mount Zion. And these people have the name of the Lamb's Father written where? Written on their forehead. And, of course, we don't know if that's visible or not. I tend to think it's not visible, but God knows it's there. Now, although there are a few Bible teachers who believe that this group of 144,000 
here in Revelation 14.1 is different from the 144,000 that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7, the majority of Bible expositors and teachers believe that this is the same group that we met, the same sealed group of Jewish servants that we met back in chapter 7. Remember, the 144,000, 12,000 came from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And those were also sealed with God's, or they had a seal of God on their forehead, even though we didn't know what that seal was at the time. Here we find out what it is. I believe that since there is no other group that has the exact size, you know, 144,000, and there's no other group that has that exact sealing on their foreheads that we have been introduced to or that has been brought to our attention in the scripture, I believe that it seems most logical to accept this group here as being the same Jewish servants that we met back in chapter 7. Now, although we were not told what their special sealing was back in that chapter, here we do find out what it is. We find out that the seal is the very name of God himself. And again, as I mentioned in our introduction, this stands in stark contrast to what we learned in chapter 13 about those who are going to follow the beast, the Antichrist, and they will submit to receiving his mark, the mark of his name or the mark of the number of his name, on their foreheads or in their foreheads or in their right hands. What John's vision here actually tells us is that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, as the scripture has predicted, to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, all 144,000 of his specially sealed Jewish servants will be here on earth to meet him. So, therefore, we conclude that the divine sealing that was put in their foreheads was a protective seal. God will have preserved them faithfully through the tribulation period and the great tribulation period as well, just as he safely preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's day back in uh, Daniel chapter 3. Now, although the Lord Jesus is portrayed here as a lamb, he's, he's referred to as a lamb actually three times in the first four, four verses, I believe it is, um, yet he is also seen as the, their shepherd, the shepherd of these 144,000. He isn't called their shepherd, but obviously he is. He's the great shepherd because we find he didn't lose one single sheep. There aren't, John does not now see 143,999 sheep, does he? No, he sees every one of the original 144,000 sheep, the Jewish servants, standing with the Lord on Mount Zion when he returns. And so he is not only the lamb, he is the great shepherd, and he cares about every single one of his sheep. He has said that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now in verse 2, John then recorded hearing a voice from heaven. And we know that this is a majestic voice because it's described as the voice of many waters, and it's also described as a voice of a great thunder. And along with this great and majestic voice, John also heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. I just love that. 
harpers harping with their harps. It reminds me of my husband. He's always, I say I'm married to an angel because he's always up in the air harping about something. <laughs> he's, he's harping about taxes right now. You know. Now, the heavenly host, which plays upon these harps, sings in accompaniment to their instruments. So, you know, they're not only playing their harps, but they're singing along with their harps. And the song that they sing is called a new song. Those singing this new song are not, right away we can determine, at verse 3, that they are not the four living creatures. You remember the four living creatures? One has a face like an ox, one like a, um, uh, what are they? A lion? No, you're thinking of the beasts. <laughs> Let me look at... Well, one has a face like an eagle, right? One like a man, one like an ox, and one like a lion. Remember those fellows? I think I have a picture of them. Yes, I do. I do. Here they are. This would have helped me if I had just looked at their faces. It's not the four living creatures, the angelic creatures, because they're mentioned separate from these singing on their harps in verse 3. And we also know that this group singing on their harps, this new song, are not the um, 24 elders, who represent the church in heaven because they are also mentioned in verse 3 as being separate from those singing. Now, the scripture doesn't really tell us who these harp-accompanying singers are, but they may very well be, and I believe that they are, the tribulation saints who will be martyred for their faith. And in fact, if you would read Revelation 15, 2, where it talks about those who got the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, they also have harps. So I do believe that those singing with their harps here in Revelation chapter 14 are the martyred tribulation saints. And now they are very joyful. Because, see, we've jumped ahead in time, and we're at the time of the Lord's second coming. And these tribulation saints are very joyful because Christ has returned to earth. And he has returned to take back that which is rightfully his and to judge the wicked. He has come also to save Israel, just as he promised. And the 144,000 there standing with him on Mount Zion symbolize the fulfillment of of that promise. They're the first fruits of that promise, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And also, of course, he has come to vindicate his holy name and God's holy name. Harps are mentioned more than 60 times in the Old Testament, and they are always associated with joy. They're a beautiful instrument. Does anybody in here play a harp? If you do, and you're keeping it a secret, shame on you. Because we, I just love the sound of a harp. And uh, I hope that maybe in heaven I will get to play one. Maybe we all will get to learn how to play one. But it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument, and it is always associated in the Scripture with joy. Do you remember when the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon? Their joy ceased. It ended. Right. So what did they do? They hung their harps on the willow trees next to the rivers of Babylon because their joy had ceased. Therefore, we know that the new song that these voices from heaven are singing is a joyous song. This is a happy song. And although the words to that song are not recorded for us, we do know that it is going to be a song which only the 144,000 can learn. Strange, isn't it? 
But that's what John says. He says in verse, the end of verse 3, he says, No man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Now, the word learn there in that verse means experientially understand in the Greek. So, you know, actually other men could learn the song. In other words, they could learn the words and they could learn the tune of that song. But they could not experientially understand it. And this is why I believe that the heavenly group which is singing represented up here, the heavenly group. Here's the 144,000 down here. Here's the heavenly group up here. I believe that those singing up in heaven, just like the 144,000 on earth, who probably many of these 144,000 led these up here in heaven to the Lord. You know, because they're the ones who are going throughout all the world and witnessing to the Gentiles. So many of these people up here were led to the Lord by the 144,000. Well, they will be the only ones who will, like the 144,000, understand what it will have been like to have been redeemed from the earth during the darkest time in all of human history, the Great Tribulation, the time when Satan and his forces will be ruling the world without the Holy Spirit's restraint of evil. When the martyred tribulation saints in heaven will see Christ on Mount Zion with the 144,000, Uh, the Jewish servants standing beside him in his glorious victory, then they're going to break out in a brand new song of praise. And the 144,000 down here on earth will be able to sing along with them because they too will understand the joy and the thrill of coming through persecution under the reign of Satan's two beasts with their faith still intact. One group, you see, in heaven will have been delivered from their enemies through martyrdom. And the other group down on earth will have been delivered from their enemies through divine preservation. But both groups will be victors because of their trust and their faith in the ultimate victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two groups, which will be a multitude, which John said he couldn't even count. He could count these, but he couldn't count the ones up here. These two groups will be singing a new song of praise that no one else will be able to sing because no one else will understand what it's like to go through the tribulation and be redeemed from the earth during that time. Now this scene again stands in contrast to chapter 13 because in that dark and dreary chapter, earth was in great rebellion against heaven. Along with the leading of the satanic trinity, remember the earth dwellers blasphemed God. They followed their leaders. Satan was getting the antichrist and the false prophet to blaspheme God, blaspheme Christ, blaspheme anything having to do with God. And so um, earth and heaven in chapter 13 were in great disharmony, weren't they? I mean, heaven was praising God down here on earth. They were blaspheming God. So heaven and earth were in great disharmony. Now, however, in chapter 14, as the Lord is prepared to usher in his kingdom on earth, we find heaven and earth brought into a marvelous harmony for the first time since the fall of man. Now, in the next two verses, we've got to camp here a little bit. 
the next two verses, we learn three additional truths about the 144,000, which were not revealed to us back in chapter 7 when we met them for the first time. We learn, first of all, that they are virgins. Second of all, we learn that they are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And then additionally, we learn that they have righteous lifestyles. They speak without guile. And they are presented faultless before the throne of God. So we're going to consider these three truths and try to determine to the best of our ability exactly what is meant by each of them. Well, first of all, John says that these 144,000, will you look at this? It's in verse 4. He says that they were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, there are several ways of interpreting this verse. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining the interpretations. To begin with, let's look at the word virgins. The word virgins in the Greek actually literally means that they are male virgins. And this is the one and only time in all of the word of God where men are referred to as virgins. The Greek word refers to the fact that they are men, not women. So all the 144,000 we know right away are men. And one interpretation is to take this literally, that these 144,000 will be true virgins. In other words, they will be men who have never had physical union with a woman. So this would mean that none of these 144,000 men are married. Now, considering what these men are called to do, which is to preach to the Gentiles of the world and considering the time in which they are called to do this which is a time of unparalleled suffering in the world it would really seem the wisest thing for God to do to choose single pure men men who have never known a woman and it would seem to be the wisest thing for these men to continue to remain single and pure during the tribulation period. I mean, when they make it to the millennial kingdom in their earthly bodies, then they can get married. But during the tribulation, it would seem wise not to get married. Now, being married, you see, and then possibly having children would hinder a man's ministry during the tribulation because he would not want to leave his family unprotected in such a hostile environment would he? In order to go out and, you know, give the message of the gospel to other people, he would be, he'd be torn. He'd want to stay home with his family. And remember now, he's divinely sealed. He's protected from harm. But his wife would not be, and his children would not be protected. And they very possibly would suffer martyrdom. So worrying about a family and trying to protect a family during such an abnormal time in history would be a hindering weight around the necks of these 144,000 men. So perhaps like the prophet Jeremiah, who lived during another abnormal time in history, he lived during the critical time of the Babylonian captivity, And he was forbidden by God himself to take a wife. He was forbidden to marry. Perhaps it is that these 144,000 will be literal virgins, men who have never known a woman and have never been married. 
Now, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation, which is taken by some, is that the 144,000 are not necessarily literal virgins. They may be, but they may also be men who have remained faithful within their marriages. And the reason that some take this view is that the Bible nowhere teaches that sexual intercourse in marriage is defiling. So you see when it says these are they which were not defiled with women, that could also mean that they're married because they wouldn't be defiled in marriage. It says in Hebrews uh, 13.4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. And even when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 was encouraging young men who were called into the ministry by God to remain unmarried, he was doing so, you know, like himself, he was not doing so for moral reasons, but instead his advice in not getting married was so that these young men might give themselves more completely to serving the, the Lord and not being encumbered by a wife and by their responsibilities to her and to any, you know, then having children. The scripture never ever teaches that a faithful married man or woman is considered any less virtuous than an unmarried virgin. Never teaches that. If the Bible did indicate such a thing, then it would make God's own commandment to be faithful and multiply and replenish the earth, it would make that commandment a contradiction with other principles in the scripture which tell us that God never tempts men with evil. So, you know, he isn't going to tell, tell us to multiply and replenish the earth and by doing so we'd be defiled, we'd be less virtuous than unmarried people and then he'd be tempting us to sin. So that, that is not the case. So as some see it, this Revelation text here about the 144,000 being virgins does not necessarily just mean that these men have never known a woman, but that it could indicate the men are undefiled because they have remained faithful to their you know, original wife in their marriage, and therefore in God's eyes they are virgins, they are undefiled. So that's the second view. Now the third view, others take the view that the term virgins is used in regard to the spiritual sense and not to the physical at all. In other words, they say, those who take this view say that these 144,000 will not have been defiled by the world they will not have compromised with the evil around them. They will not have joined in with the apostate church, which is called the great whore, the great harlot, over in Revelation chapter 17. They will not have uh, participated in the worldwide religion of the, you know, worship of the beast. They will not have bow bowed to any idol of any kind. You know, in the Old Testament, idolatry, was referred to as spiritual fornication. So the 144,000, having kept themselves spiritually pure during the time of the tribulation, could be, according to these people, referred to as virgins in the spiritual sense. They will have refused to believe the lies of the false prophet. 
and the lying wonders, you know, the miracles that the Antichrist is able to perform. And they will hold instead to the truth of God's words. They will adhere to their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it tells us in the end or at the end of verse, no, the middle of verse 4, they will follow in the Lord's footsteps. They will follow in the Lamb's footsteps, actually, whithersoever he goeth. He is the shepherd. And they're following in his footsteps. But isn't it interesting that the shepherd is called the lamb? Just another one of the paradoxes of the scripture. So those are the three views. That they are literal virgins. That they are perhaps men who are married and faithful in their marriage. And therefore they are seen as virgins in God's eyes because they're undefiled. Or thirdly, that it is meant in a spiritual uh, way. That they are spiritually undefiled. Now, there is also the the possibility that God means more than one of these. He could mean all three of them. Personally, I believe that these special men are going to be both physical virgins. I do believe that God will not call out married men at such a time as this, just as he did with uh, Jeremiah. Daniel also was a virgin because he was a eunuch. I do not think God will call out married men and, you know, ask them to leave their families unprotected during this awful time. So this is just my opinion. I cannot be dogmatic about it, but I believe that they will be actual, literal virgins, men who have never known a woman, men who have never been married, and that they will also be spiritual virgins, that they will be undefiled with the world as well. And you're free to come up with your own interpretation or combination of interpretations. Now, the second fact that we learn about these 144,000 is that they are the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And this identification indicates that they are the first fruits of Israel. We have to remember that these men are what? Gentiles? No, they are Jewish. 12,000 of them come from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. On the Feast of First Fruits, which was one of the Jewish feast days, the priest, the Jewish priest, would wave the sheaf of grain before the Lord in order to serve as a sign that the entire harvest belonged to the Lord. The 144,000 Jewish servants will serve as the first fruits of the nation of Israel. And they, they are there on Mount Zion being waved before the Lord, you know, indicating the harvest to come in fulfillment of Romans 11.26, where we are told that all Israel will be saved. So you see these 144,000 Jews are just the first fruits of the nation of Israel. The nation will be saved. Furthermore, the 144,000 will also be the first fruits of those redeemed out of the earth who will populate in human bodies the millennial kingdom. So they're the first fruits of the salvation of Israel, and they're the first fruits of those who will go into the millennial kingdom in their earthly bodies. You know, we hear about other first fruits in the scripture. For example, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the first fruits. What is he the first fruit of? Right, exactly, of the resurrection. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And then we are called first fruits. The church saints are referred to as uh, first fruits. I believe it's in James 1:18. And we are the first fruits of a heavenly people. Whereas you see these 144,000 are the first fruits of the 
earthly people, the people who go, will go into the kingdom in their earthly bodies. We will be in the kingdom, but we won't have our earthly bodies. Yes. We will have our brand new glorified, young, wrinkle-free, gray-free bodies. <laughs> Now, the third thing John tells us about the 144,000 is that they had no guile found in their mouths. And this, this uh, speaks about hypocrisy. They have no hypocrisy, no deceit found in them at all. And this is a contrast because this is a time when the whole world is going to be full of lies and deceit under the rule of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And yet this faithful group is going to remain true. They will not lie, nor will they be deceived by the lies that are flying all around them. While all the world is cursing and blaspheming God and Christ and uh, anything having to do with them, these will have no guile whatsoever found in their mouths. They will be genuine through and through. Is that what they can say about you? Is that what they can say about me? I hope. They won't be like the false prophet and appear to be one thing and yet inwardly be something else. They will say what they believe and they will not compromise their message in order to avoid trouble. That's an easy thing to do, isn't it? When we're out there in the world, you know, to compromise our message a little bit so we don't offend anybody or don't step on anybody's toes or don't, that we're not looked down on as being inferior or stupid or something. These will not do that to avoid trouble. Furthermore, they will be, we're told, uh, let's see, at the end of verse 5, that they will be brought faultless before God's throne. Did you know that we are going to be brought faultless? before God's throne. It says the last verses of Jude, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to look forward to? One day we'll stand before God and he will see us as faultless, not because we are in ourselves, but because of Christ who is faultless. He will see us clothed in Christ's faultlessness, in Christ's righteousness and holiness. Now, of course, their whole ability, the 144,000s, their whole ability to live and to speak righteously is solely because they also are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, just as we are. Now, in addition to being positionally righteous, however, these 144,000 are also going to be practically, in other words, in their walk, in their lifestyle, they are also going to be righteous and quote-unquote faultless as much as is humanly possible. They will not, of course, be perfect because there is only one who is perfect and who has, has ever been perfect, and that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But these 144,000 will live exceptionally righteous lives, especially in light of the evil world all around them. You know, the darker the world, the brighter our light shines. And so their world is going to be very, very dark, and their, their righteous lives will really shine out even all the more brilliantly. You know, God chooses men and women to serve him, and he, he uses them more effectively 
and puts them in greater places of responsibility when they live lives that are unspotted by the world. He likes to pick out vessels that are undefiled, vessels that have no guile in them, vessels who do not compromise their message, vessels who don't, you know, do worldly things. <laughs> they're in the world and they're witnessing to the world, but the, they don't allow the world to get in them. And if you really want to be used by God, and I'm sure you do or you wouldn't be here this morning, then we really need to, this is something that, I mean, we live in a dark age. And our testimony, our lifestyle will stand out all the more brilliantly the more we are separated from the world in the way we act, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we dress, the way we smell, what we listen to, what we read. All those things are very, very important. And I can't ever stress that enough. I, I really believe that's something that's lacking in this day and age, especially in this country. Well, I know it's in other countries, too, come to think of it. The whole world is getting so westernized that they're all turning out materialistic like we are. But we, need to, we really need to work on our holiness and being separate for the Lord Jesus Christ if we, want to, if we truly desire to be used more effectively for him. It's so easy to become distracted by the world. Don't you see it in your churches? I think we see it in every one of our churches. People get so distracted by the world, by the seductions of the world, by the pleasures of the world, by the morals of the world, by the riches of the world. I mean, we are so rich in this country, and it's so easy to just be sucked in to materialism. The single greatest measure of our effectiveness for God is directly related to our attraction to the world and to our uh, spottedness or our unspottedness with it. Satan knows, you see, that he has lost the battle for the soul of the born-again believer. So he uses the world to attempt to destroy the born-again believer as far as his testimony to the world is concerned. And tragically, in this day and age, he you know, it's probably true all all the way down through the church age, he has succeeded far more often than he has failed in, you know, destroying people's testimonies. You hear about it every single day. The person is saved for eternity, but they're destroyed. Their testimony down here on earth has been destroyed. Okay, well, we're doing really good. One out of Five. Let's go to the forever gospel. This is the second vision, and for this we'll look at verses 6 and 7. John says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Six angels are now going to be heard by John in the next uh, remaining six visions. And all of these angels have urgent messages or urgent ministries to proclaim concerning those living on the earth. And this, again, really is God's mercy in the midst of judgment because he is forewarning men through these angelic messengers of 
their absolute need for salvation in order to avoid the judgment which is coming at the end of the tribulation. And he would not give these warnings through these angels if it was too late for men to get saved. So we know even up until the end, individual men, if they will willingly repent and ask Christ to save them, he will. Well, during the tribulation, the Antichrist possessed, of course, by the same Lucifer who initially rebelled against the Most High God, will arise to proclaim himself as God. And he will demand, as we saw in last week's lesson, that all the world worship him. The false prophet, who will be counterfeiting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, will point all the world to the Antichrist and proclaim that indeed he is God, as he says he is, and therefore he is worth worshiping. He will remind the world of all the you know, miracles the Antichrist has done such as raising from the dead, which we talked about last week as well. Now, their joint message, the Antichrist and the false prophet, their joint message will, of course, come from Satan himself. And this joint message will be a false gospel message. Therefore, God is going to send this angel to present to the world the true gospel message, the eternal gospel. Verse 6 says that the flying angel who will shout his message will do so to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples of the world, and he will preach from the midst of the heavens, and that's talking about the atmospheric heavens. So I have you know, this vision of him flying right around the surface of the world and proclaiming the everlasting gospel to every kindred, every nation, every people, every tongue. Now the question is, what is the everlasting gospel that he is proclaiming? Well, the word gospel, as you all know, literally means what? Right, good news. And we should immediately, in our minds, equate the word gospel, the words good news, with the substitutionary death, the bodily burial, the bodily resurrection, and the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the central focus of the gospel, isn't it? This is what it takes knowing and believing and accepting in your heart for a person to be born again, a person to be born into God's kingdom. However, it does not exhaust the gospel. It doesn't exhaust the good news. It does not include the full scope of the gospel message, which really includes the complete work of Christ. You know, this was his complete work on the cross. This was his complete redemption work. But the the gospel goes all the way from eternity past to eternity future. That's Christ's complete work. It's very interesting to notice that the word gospel occurs for the very first time in the Bible in Matthew 4.23. And there it is a reference to the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, it is the good news of, of the coming again of Christ to establish his universal earthly kingdom which he will reign over sovereignly as king of kings and lord of lords. Now, the last time the word gospel appears in the Bible is right here in Revelation 14, verse 6. And it refers back, if we look at the angel's words, it refers back to the Lord's work at creation. Notice his message is, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made, here we talk about creation, 
made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So the first and the last mention of the word gospel in the Bible takes us from the yet future kingdom of Christ on earth to the far past creation of Christ of the earth and the heaven and everything. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he is the creator of all things, which means that he is able to control all things and that he is able to judge all things by right of his omnipotent power and by right of his ownership. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he is the redeemer of all things. And that means that he is able to save them who come to God by him because of his work on the cross. Third, he, the good news of Jesus Christ tells us that he is the heir of all things. And therefore, he will victoriously take back the earth, which is rightfully his. And he will bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. So the creation, we could say, is the foundation of the gospel. And that's why it's so, so important for churches to maintain creationism. You can't take creationism out of the Bible. You can't say, no, there was not a a literal creation in six days and that God didn't create Adam and Eve. You know, he created us through the evolutionary process instead because then Adam, Adam and Eve never fell. If they never fell, we didn't inherit the Adamic sin nature. If we didn't inherit the sin nature, why in the world did Jesus Christ have to come and die for our sins? You know, if you think things logically through, you cannot be an evolutionist and claim to be a Christian at the same time. Creation is the foundation of the gospel. And the second coming is the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. And, of course, the cross and the empty tomb are the power of the gospel. Well, the angel sent by God to proclaim the everlasting gospel to all the tribulation world will begin his message by saying what? Fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says, fear God and give glory to him. In other words, he's warning the earth dwellers, remember they're the unsaved, to fear God. Not the beast. Don't fear the beast. Fear God. Fear God. Don't fear physical death. Fear him who is able to kill body and soul. Fear God. Don't fear the power of this false prophet. Fear God. Don't fear peer pressure. Fear God. Don't fear anything on earth and glorify God. Don't glorify the beast by bowing down to his image. Glorify God. Do not glorify the unholy satanic trinity. Actually, you know, the everlasting gospel goes back even further than the creation of the heaven and the earth. And it will stretch out even further than the earthly kingdom. It is the basic good news. The everlasting gospel is the basic good news that there is but one God and he alone must be worshipped. And this is the same 
exact same everlasting gospel that Lucifer first raised his fist against long ago. And it is the same everlasting gospel which will exist when we have been in heaven 10,000 years times 10,000 years. Because God himself and Christ himself and the Holy Spirit himself are everlasting. And so, therefore, the good news about the Trinity is everlasting. Aren't you glad we have an everlasting gospel? instead of this temporary false gospel that men will believe in the end times and the one that men believe today as well. Well, after predicting many of the same events about which we have been studying in the book of Revelation, such as the coming of false Christs and the coming of wars and rumors of wars and famines, pestilences, earthquakes, the persecution of the saints, and then the coming of false prophets. After predicting all of those things in the Olivet Discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ said this. Listen, this is in Matthew 24:14. Here's what he said. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world For a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Isn't that interesting to think about that verse in light of what we just read in Revelation 14, 6 and 7? The Lord was speaking in the Olivet Discourse about the events which would occur prior, immediately prior to his second coming. He was going to make certain, you see that there was not going to be one soul left on earth who had not heard the gospel message so that no one in eternity future someday could ever say that he did not have a chance to accept Christ. When Satan was really ruling the world, there was no opportunity. Well, the actual fulfillment of that verse in Matthew 24:14 that the gospel would be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nation nations is found in the flying angels and by the way that picture is wrong because never is an angel seen as a woman in the bible so it should be a man um it will be found that fulfillment of that verse will be found when this flying angel proclaims worldwide the message of the everlasting everlasting gospel you know the two mighty witnesses will have done their very best to get the gospel message to Israel but they won't be able to get to everybody in Israel and the 144,000 will have done their very best to get to all the Gentiles of the world and proclaim the gospel message to them but they can't possibly get to every little Timbuktu and every little person living everywhere in the world but the flying angel circling the globe in the midst of the atmospheric heavens will make sure that there is not one soul left on earth who has not heard the gospel message so who in the world could possibly say that God doesn't really really try to reach men who could possibly accuse him of of just committing men to hell without really desiring their salvation. It is not his will that any man, even the wickedest man living in the wickedest time, it's not his will that any man should perish. Bless you. 
So that I thought was fascinating. I had never seen Matthew 24, 14 in light of this before. I guess I had last time I studied it, but I'm getting old, so I forget things. So it's all new again. Let's look at the third vision, fallen Babylon. And for this, we look at verse 8. It says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In chapter 14, John receives visions which reveal for us, as I've said, a preview of programs, of the program of events which are yet to follow. Now, the second angel here that he saw and wrote about in verse 8 is going to issue out this message. He will say, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So his proclamation is a proclamation of judgment on the Babylonian system, world system, which actually is divided into two Babylons. There is religious Babylon and there is political Babylon. And that's why the angel repeats the phrase, is fallen, is fallen. One for religious, one for uh, materialistic, or, or um, we could say one for the ecumenic Babylon, because it will be a one-world religion under supposedly Christendom, but it won't be true Christendom. Uh, And then we could call the other one economic. So we could say ecumenic and economic Babylons. And we'll discuss them in greater detail when we get to Revelation chapters 17 and 18. But for here, see now, he's giving us a preview of things that are to come. Back in Genesis chapter 10 and also Genesis chapter 11... You know, we all have read it before, about the account of Nimrod building the city of Babel. Babel became the first world center of anti-God activity. And Babel eventually grew into a world power, a Gentile world power which oppressed the Jews and even took them into captivity, into Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was known for its pride. It was known for its idolatry. And it is from Babel and Babylon that all religious cults and all false religions actually find their origin. There's a very, very fascinating book called The Two Babylons, written by Alexander Hislop. H-I-S-L-O-P. It is not easy reading. There is another book written that kind of takes his book and puts it more into our English And uh, it's called Mystery Babylon Revealed. Mary, what was the name of that book? Something like that. I have it. I have two copies if anybody's interested in the paperback edition. But I strongly, I mean, I can't say it enough, challenge every one of you, especially in this day when we see all kinds of things happening, everybody wanting to get together, regardless of doctrine, let's all get together in one big brotherhood of man, forget the doctrine, Catholics and evangelicals together, Mormons, well, let's include them, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, anybody, anybody at all who maybe even just says the name Jesus Christ, we'll put them all together. You need to understand where all cults and all religions originated other than Christianity. And I would recommend this book. It opened my eyes wider than they have ever been opened by any single book other than the Bible. 
Okay, enough for that. I'll never finish, right? Well, the humanistic anti-God world system, which was first established in Babel under Nimrod, will once again in the tribulation be united in a great religious, commercial, cultural, and political system, which will still be very humanistic and very anti-God. Man, back in Babel, wanted to uh, prove that he could reach up to God on his own didn't he? That's, that's a work system. See, every religion, every cult is based on a work system. I can work my way to heaven. The only one that's a grace system is Christianity. And what did they want to do? They wanted to make a name for themselves, and that's nothing but humanism. In the last days, in the tribulation days, the great whore called Babylon. You can actually read that in Revelation 17.1. She's called a great whore. She is the ecumenic Babylon, the false apostate church that has embraced everything and come together in one wor- a one-world church. She is going to ally herself both politically and religiously with the Antichrist. She's actually seen sitting on the Antichrist. However, unknown to her, He is using her. He's merely using her with his very skillful diplomacy. You know, he's going to be quite a diplomat. Using his masterful skills of flattery and deception, he is using her because she's very powerful. Remember where she's seated? On seven hills in Rome. And he will use her to climb to his own position of power. Once he has gotten what he needs from her, he's going to turn on religious Babylon, the apostate ecumenical church, and he's going to destroy her completely. You can read about that in Revelation 17, and we will be talking about that when we get to that chapter. But really, it is God himself who is using the Antichrist. Antichrist is using the false church, but God is using the Antichrist to judge the false church when he destroys her. At the end of the Great Tribulation, the political... Now, see, I was just talking about the ecumenic or the religious Babylon. Now, the other Babylon is the economic Babylon. It will be destroyed, it tells us in Revelation 18, in one hour. Have you ever seen the... the, What is it? the, The stock market, the Dow Jones average go down really quick? Well, it's going to happen in one hour. It's going to be destroyed by the hand of God himself. He won't use Satan for this. He's going to do it himself. The fall of these two Babylons is viewed by God as so certain to happen that this angel uses the Greek aortis tense. In other words, he sees it as already having happened. You see, the angel understands what many men do not understand, and that is what God predicts to happen. No matter how crazy it might sound, no matter how far out it might sound, what God predicts will happen will so surely come to pass that it can be already stated as having occurred. And that's why he says, is fallen, is fallen. Now, there have been more people destroyed, both for this life and for the life to follow, due to these two Babylons, these two Babylonian systems, than to any other thing. These two systems, both begun by Nimrod back in 
uh, Babylon and also his wife, Semiramis, had a lot to do with the false religion, um, are, they are false religion. Can you think of how many millions of people have been destroyed by false religion? And the other one is by commercialization or materialism, mammon. How many millions and billions of people have been destroyed by one of those two Babylonian systems? But one day, both of them will be destroyed. Well, another angel comes along in verses 9 and 11, and he proclaims future wrath. Verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. This third angel now pronounces doom on anyone who follows the beast and receives his mark. Just as Babylon made all the nations drink the wine of her fornication that we read about in verse 8, so God will make all the beast worshipers drink the wine of his wrath. And essentially then this is a message that those who worship the unholy trinity are going to be doomed. Oops, I'm behind. (laughs) They're going to be doomed to an eternal hell. Verse 10 tells us that God's wrath is going to be poured out without what? Without mixture. And that is, that's, that's talking serious. When God's wrath is no longer mixed with mercy. And this is what we're going to see when those seven bold judgments are poured out upon the earth. No mercy. It's a frightening thing to think about because God has never, ever, ever um, not tempered his wrath with grace and with mercy, except on one occasion. And that was when his son literally became sin and a curse for us. And then God's wrath was poured out without any mercy. Well, in the time of the Great Tribulation, God's wrath is going to be undiluted. For those who have continued to stubbornly refuse God's messages and God's warning signs and his warning judgments, and nobody could say he didn't send plenty of them. I mean, think about the angel proclaiming the gospel to the whole world. Those who refuse all that will, and they will have instead taken the mark of the beast on their foreheads or on their right hands, and they have worshipped the beast, they have fallen down before his image and worshipped him rather than the true Christ, there is going to be no hope. All they can expect is assuredly uh, experiencing eternal torment in hell. Now, for those who erroneously believe in a place called purgatory. False doctrine, never ever taught in the Bible. By the way, I just read an article that the Pope is reinstating indulgences for the 2000 millennium celebration. So he has promised an indulgence that you can shorten your time in purgatory if 
during the millennium you will give up cigarette smoking or drinking for one day. One day. Unbelievable. So for those who erroneously believe they've been deceived, it's just deception, in a purgatory, and for those who believe that hell is not really going to be forever, they need to take a better look at verse 11 here because it states that the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever and they have no rest day nor night. Hell is forever. It is an eternity of woe and torment and sorrow. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we just mentioned, once drained the cup of God's indignation against sin for us. He drained that cup of God's wrath against sin down to the very dregs. He substituted his own sufferings for our sufferings. He took the full and the eternal wrath of God, which should have been poured out upon you and me. Because we're the sinners, he wasn't. And yet he let it be poured out upon himself instead. But when men willfully refuse and reject Christ's great sacrifice on their behalf, then they're left with only one alternative. They must drink the cup of God's undiluted wrath themselves. Because they refuse the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb, they must themselves suffer in the presence of the Lamb, as well as in the presence of the holy angels, whose ministries and whose messages they also have rejected. Look at the end of verse 10. It actually tells us that those in torment in hell will be seen in the presence of, I mean, the Lamb and the holy angels will actually be able to see them. I am so thankful it does not say that the saints of God will be able to see them. But... Christ and the angels will be able to ever look down on their eternal torment. Now, the reference to torment with fire and brimstone is, of course, you know, a reference to the lake of fire, which will be the eternal home for the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, all of the fallen demons, and all the people who have chosen to live and to die without Christ. If a man chooses to live this life without Christ, then he will live his whole next life. It's his choice also without Christ. And that next life never ends. Hell is real. Hell is the inevitable consequence of sin. Just like fire burns, sin damns. You know, this world is is built on physical principles. If I took my Bible and dropped it, what principle would go into effect? The law of gravity. Well, just as there are physical laws that govern this world, there are also moral laws. The wages of sin is death. That is one of the moral laws. God has said in his holy word that there is a literal hell. And it was not prepared for men. It was prepared for the devil and his angels, the angels who rebelled with him. But if men choose to follow the devil, 
If they choose, see, they, we have free choice. If they choose to follow Satan, they will also follow him right into the everlasting fire. The Lord Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. Why? Was that because he was mean and not kind and just... It's, it's because he was trying to warn men how real it is. His reason for doing so is because it's not his will that any man should go there. He tried to warn men against hell. And like his father, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. A lot of people choose to disregard the idea of a literal lake of fire. But you know they do so at great, enormous, eternal risk because the Bible specifically teaches a literal hell. And it describes it in great detail. It describes it as a place of outer darkness, as a place of fire unquenchable, of smoke that ascends forever and ever, and of a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, as a place where there is torment and thirst and loneliness. No, you won't be with all your buddies. Loneliness, darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth, and a continual burning without annihilation. People will wish they could just be obliterated, but they cannot be. And sadly, about 180 people a minute find out that hell is real. But though it is real, it is not unavoidable. Just as people during the tribulation will have a choice whether to worship the beast or to worship the lamb, so people today essentially have exactly the same choice. They can choose to live their lives and eternity with the Holy Trinity, with the true lamb, or they can choose to live their lives here on earth and eternity with the unholy trinity in torment, which never, ever, ever, ever ends. There is a brighter note to end on, and that is future rest. And I'll close with this. Verses 12 and 13, John says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. John here interjects, of course under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he puts an interjection in that has to do with the patience of the saints of the tribulation period. They are told here that they are going to be rewarded for their faithfulness. Those who refuse to worship the beast will do so because they have remained patient and they have remained loyal and faithful to God and to God's commandments and to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know it's going to take a great deal of patience and a great deal of faith for anyone living in the tribulation to remain true to God, you know, at the, at the risk of losing their own lives. The beasts may be able to put these saints to death physically, and of course many, many, many of them will be put to death, but God tells them 
in verse 13, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Why are they blessed? Well, for one thing, because their sufferings will have ended forever. No more suffering forever and ever. And their eternal reward will be certain. They will be able to rest from their labors. Do you notice a contrast with what we just read? These saints are able to rest from their labors, but look at the wicked back in verse 11 who had no rest day nor night. Another contrast. Well, the last part of verse 13 tells us that the works of the tribulation saints are going to follow them. Every tribulation saint is going to have some work. Even if they got saved one day and got killed the next day, they have a work that is going to follow behind them because they're each one of them going to leave a testimony behind that they were willing to die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I want to share this with you because I've, I've had a rough week. I had a, a real rough week trying to get this lesson accomplished and... Uh, we, we had a, a big celebrate a, part, a birthday party for my daughter who came home from college because she turns 20 next Saturday. And she brought home with her a sick boyfriend who I had to nurse back to health. And, and uh, anyway, when, when I have one little additional thing that comes along in my life, it just throws everything off because I can't, if I afford, if I miss one day of study, I have to make up the time. And there just isn't any other time because I, I, I work all day Saturday and Sunday I come up here and make all the copies for the notes. And I'm not complaining to you all. I'm just saying this is reality. This is the way it is. So when my daughter or any of my children have something different and new, it throws me off. And so I really had a hard week and I had to stay up two nights in a row until 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm kind of brain dead right now. But, I, I, you know, I get, I get really kind of down. And I think, well, maybe I'm just getting too old to keep doing this. Well, as I was studying this lesson, I know the Lord put this little poem into my hands because I had this 10 years ago when we studied Revelation. And I found it and I thought, oh, man, Lord, you knew what I needed. And I figure if I needed this, I know there's some of you out there that need it as well because you are probably the, the, uh, the basic workers in your churches. I know 10% of the people do 100% of the work, and we can get so heavy, you know, overloaded working for the Lord that sometimes we just feel like we're going to burn out. So if you can take comfort in this little poem like I did, maybe it'll recharge you like it recharged me. It's called Tired in the Master's Service. Tired in the Master's Service? Yes, I did feel tired today. And the devil came near and whispered, you are wearing yourself away. But heeding not his tempting, I turned my Savior to see. And he came near and whispered, Are you sorry you're tired for me? Then quickly the burden was lifted, and the tiredness all had fled. As with a heart full of rapture, not sorry but glad, I said, Glad to be tired for the master, and the pathway was light that I trod, for he had come near and taught me, it is sweet to be tired for God. <laughs>